Hi, welcome to Tab's Two Cents. Today on the show, we have Doomberg. We're going to be talking about banking, energy, and crypto. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Tab's Two Cents, the show where we discuss multiple income streams and macro factors affecting the world today. Hey, Doomberg, welcome back to the show. Hey, great to be here. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, for sure. Really appreciate your time. I thought we could start the pod. There's obviously some things going on in the banking sector. Maybe we could just start there. I know typically we talk about energy, but this is obviously something that could have an impact globally on kind of everything. So why don't we start with SVBs? What happened there and what do you think is going to unfold from this? Yeah, it's been, I would say, a historic week in the U.S. banking sector. It remains to be seen whether we are past the apex of panic. The crisis began when the sort of three banks that have gone defunct, uh, there's Silicon Valley Bank, which you referenced in your question. There's also a pair of banks closely associated with the crypto industry, Silvergate and Signature Bank of New York. And those two banks had the largest sort of payment rails into and out of the crypto universe. Silvergate had what was known as a SEND network and Signature had Signet. And this was sort of 24-7 rapid flow of money into and out of the, the crypto universe. And so there's, you know, the government, in a, in a piece we just wrote called uh, Don Jerome, in a matter of a week, all three of those banks are basically in the hands of the feds now. The uh, Silicon Valley Bank is a slightly different story than the other two in the sense that that seemed to be at least a traditional run on the bank. Uh, you know, and I, I'm not a banking expert per se, but I have friends in the space and I've been reading a lot of the analysis. And, and essentially what happened was uh, with the massive inflow of cash into Silicon Valley Bank associated with the mania in the private markets uh, post-COVID, all of these unicorn startups were raising an enormous amount of cash at crazy valuations. And that cash had to be put somewhere. And so you saw an avalanche of deposits into Silicon Valley Bank. And then the management made what looks like to be a critical error to begin reaching for yield by buying 10-year treasury bonds just ahead of the Fed's historically aggressive rate hike cycle, which of course substantially decreases the value of those bonds. And essentially the bank was insolvent. And then a run on the bank occurred when many, I would say, influential Silicon Valley VC types got on Twitter and started yelling fire in a crowded theater. So yeah, people started pulling their funds. Peter Thiel and Y Combinator, two very large and very influential figures in the private markets, advised their portfolio companies to yank their deposits. And then of course, uh, once, once a bank run begins, absent a sort of lender of last resort to get in there in time, it's inevitable. And this of course has all been accelerated by the ease with which money can be moved around in the digital age. And uh, Peter Atwater just had a great appearance with uh, Grant Williams on the Grant Williams podcast, where he described how it's just inconceivable that 25% of their deposits were yanked overnight and, and no bank can survive that, especially one that is sitting on a whole bunch of treasuries that are significantly underwater. Silicon Valley Bank failed and then they seized Signature Bank over the weekend in a really bizarre, matter of fact, <laughs> couple of paragraphs in a, in a press release from the Fed and the Treasury. And then now the contagion has begun to spread to other banks that have similar profiles. So of course, every analyst on the street is looking for banks that have a high concentration of deposits over the FDIC limit of 250000 because that's the other thing that was pretty unique about Silicon Valley Bank, which is all of these startups and wealthy depositors had funds well in excess of 250000 And so they would have high motivation to move them, believing that the FDIC coverage, of course, wouldn't be extended to them. So you had this combination of very flighty deposits with an underwater long duration bank book that couldn't be monetized in time to meet the flight of the deposits. So now, of course, every banking analyst on the street is doing a two-by-two two matrix of which banks have a very similar profile. And, and the next bank in the crosshairs this week was 
First Republic Bank, and um, there appeared to have been a run on that bank, which has been stopped, at least temporarily, by a massive and unprecedented injection of $30 billion of deposits from the big banks, which is sort of a message to depositors that your funds are safe there. Remains to be seen whether that will be enough as of Friday morning when we're recording this. FRC stock seems to be stabilized around $30 a share. And so we will see. If we lose another high-profile bank or two, I think the Fed is in a real pickle, which is why I think the big banks were sort of coerced is probably the wrong word, but they partnered with regulators to inject this fresh round of deposits into First Republic. Um, so yeah, that's sort of a summary. It's been a crazy week. I think this is a week that will be written about in the history books and also how this week you know, goes, how Friday closes, how things transpire over the weekend and how it looks on Monday could have a huge impact on the markets from here on out. And then finally, which we didn't even touch on, is the whole Credit Suisse situation. But as my good friend Tony Greer at TG Macro likes to say, Credit Suisse has been failing for as long as he has been trading. So that's a, that's a high-level summary. Happy to take it in any direction that you would like to go. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for that. I think you sort of gave a good overview for anybody who hasn't been reading about this lately. One thing I want to ask you about with the First Republic deposit what I find interesting is that some of these banks, you would think they would almost go in the direction where they could purchase First Republic at a discount, but they seem kind of tentative to buy the bank. Why do you think they're more willing to provide a cash deposit rather than a takeover? A couple of reasons, and I'm not sure it's just the banks. I think all the feds are a little uncomfortable with the level of concentration in the banking sector that exists already. Many of the big banks who were forced into shotgun marriages during the last financial crisis, the great financial crisis of 08-09, were held liable for the sins of those banks and the activities that happened at those banks prior to taking them over. So Jamie Dimon, the CEO of JP Morgan, has famously said he's never doing that again. You know, He ended up with Bear Stearns and cost that bank billions and billions of dollars. And so there will, of course, undoubtedly be a wave of lawsuits and Lord knows what we're going to find You know, when you lift under the hood of a bank like Silicon Valley Bank, which was super well connected with all kinds of fast money. There are rumors of large Chinese depositors being involved and who knows where that leads. And so I think there is the hesitation on the part of the biggest of the big banks because they're among the few who could actually do it. But at the same time, even though they were semi-forced into doing it in the last financial crisis at the request of, of federal regulators, it's not like they got indemnification for the liabilities they were also taking onto their balance sheet. And so this is a point of friction, I think, in the ongoing attempt to resolve this situation as unprecedented as these deposits are. And I still can't say that I fully understand how this is supposed to rectify things because they're getting paid 4.5% for those deposits. And what does that mean for First Republic's equity? And if First Republic's equity is demonstrably a zero, then if it does go bankrupt, doesn't that just cause more panic? I, I don't know. I'm just speculating here. I'm not a banking expert. It, it just seemed like a very odd solution. If the point of that onslaught of deposits was to stem the panic... I think Secretary Yellen's performance in Congress that has been gone viral here on Twitter in the past 24 hours is not very helpful in that regard. I think, you know, if, if you were a betting person, you would say that any corporation with a fiduciary that was carrying deposits in excess of 250000 at a smaller regional banks is at least having a risk review with their leadership to understand whether they shouldn't be moving entirely to one of the too-big-to-fail banks or diversifying into other banks. So yeah, it's a very complex situation with a lot of moving parts. I hope you know that First Republic is stabilized and that the crisis is stopped at the banks that have failed already. I also hope that we have a serious conversation at the national level about the importance of regional banks and their critical role in the economy and whether we truly want to live in a country where five or six or eight banks have you know 100% market share in the banking sector. 
these are questions to be debated and you know ultimately adjudicated on by Congress, one would hope, as opposed to making it up on the fly in order to put band-aids on wounds as the banking crisis sort of uh, careens from one bank to another. That's a really interesting point, I think, to discuss. And something that I just thought of is during the pandemic, retail companies, small retailers really struggled. And that was due to obviously you know, mandates and, and whatever kind of policy was put in place. In this case, this crisis, this is a banking crisis, and it seems like smaller banks could struggle. Do you think that in crisis, generally, the bigger players tend to come out better? And do you think that's going to happen here? So it's an interesting question. I think these things go in cycles. So for example, during the pandemic, obviously one of the big winners was Amazon, but Amazon is struggling now that we've come out the other side of it. I think if broadly speaking, taking a higher level view outside of the banking sector, if you have a concentrated market of oligopolies, they tend not to innovate very much. They tend to have moats, which they press, of course, but that also does leave open eventually the window for more nimble and smaller entrepreneurs to chip away. You know, we like to call it eating between the toes of the dinosaurs. And so that could be a long cycle. We could be in for several years of consolidation in the banking sector. But as I said, the regulators are hesitant for the JP Morgans of the world to buy these banks and the JP Morgans of the world are hesitant to take on these liabilities since seeing how they were burned by touching the oven last time. And so it is, a, again, a very complex situation and it, it is really historic. I guess I, I, it, there's no other word to describe what we're seeing, you know, the speed of these headlines. It certainly has a 2008 feel to it. I and mean, maybe that's just PTSD on, on my part, but it, it certainly feels like we're on pretty shaky ground. And I would reemphasize if people haven't seen Janet Yellen's pitiful performance under a barrage of questions from a senator from Oklahoma yesterday in Congress. It is well worth your time to go and find it. It's If you could see it on my Twitter account, at Doomberg T, the post that we put out yesterday was take five minutes and watch this video. I think the video has now been seen almost 2 million times on Twitter as we record this. It really was a incredible, really historic exchange between Yellen. I think Langford is his name, Senator Langford from Oklahoma. Let's just say that she didn't hold up well to his questions. Yes, I actually did take the five minutes to watch that video. And I agree. I think it's very interesting the way that she handled those questions. Essentially, what I gathered, and you, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that the FDIC is using their insurance payments to pay off the larger banks, which may in turn leave nothing left for smaller banks if they need the money. And they are essentially the ones paying most of the premium. Is that correct? So not fully. What has transpired is there are sort of three types of banks now in this weird sort of purgatory that we're in. There's the too big to fail banks, which by definition, the government has given the label of, I believe it's uh, systemically important banks or SIBs. And nobody believes that the US government would let one of these banks fail and they wouldn't. So that's your JP Morgan's, your Bank of America's, your Wells Fargo, your Citibank's. So if you have $100 million or a billion dollars on deposit at JP Morgan, you're not all that worried about JP Morgan going out of business and only getting $250,000 worth of FDIC insurance. In the second category, newly created, we have these two banks that have failed. Silvergate has declared a weird intention to self-unwind. We'll see how that goes. But Signature and Silicon Valley Bank are in the hands of the feds. And the feds have unilaterally declared that all depositors, including uninsured depositors, will be made whole, which is sort of a blanket authority of dubious legality in my view. But um, again, not a banking expert, but um, no money from the FDIC has yet been paid because no depositors have yet sort of lost any funds. And so the third category, which was Senator Langford's focus, which is all of the other banks that 
aren't either currently in the possession of the feds or not labeled with, you know, the SIB construct where everyone just assumes that the feds would never allow them to fail. And his question was essentially, if I have excess funds in those banks, why would I leave them there? Why wouldn't I be rushing to open up an account at JP Morgan? And anecdotally, we're seeing a lot of that. And uh, she didn't have a very good answer. You know, the law of unintended consequences is real. Like Canada has this five major banks that are heavily regulated and they pretend to compete against each other. If we lose the regional banks in the U.S., we lose a very important element of how the economy works, which is it's a hell of a lot easier to get to know your banker at your local credit union for them to do a full KYC AML on you. And if you need to borrow money for a real estate purchase you're doing or your business needs some money to pay for working capital to fund growth. They're close to you and they can see what's going on and they'll happily lend to you. It's, it's much, much harder for a small business to get similar service from, you know, JP Morgan. JP Morgan's got billionaires to cater to. They don't really care about the mom and pops trying to go from uh, two coffee shops in the region to three. And so when you lose that, you lose really significant economic activity that otherwise wouldn't occur. And that's my primary concern. I, I'm a small business owner, obviously, Doomberg, and we live in rural flyover country and we have great relationships with our local bankers. And for us, it would be personally challenging and very tragic if suddenly the branches of the bank that we bank with for the totality of our time together as a business would suddenly become owned by Citigroup or Wells Fargo, where you be, you go from being on the first name basis with your bank manager to being just another very tiny number in a spreadsheet that some you know analyst in New York occasionally looks at. And so this is real. It's important. One hopes that from this crisis will arise a more sensible set of regulations that recognize the importance of small regional banks and their critical role in our economy. You know, something as simple as raising the FDIC insurance limits to a million dollars. That would be a good start. You know, these limits are sort of arbitrary and, and not corrected for inflation. And so, you know, that that's sort of, again, I have direct sort of skin in the game, I guess one would say, because I, I, I cherish the banking relationships that we have and they're an important part of our business. Uh, we would not have been able to achieve the success we've been able to enjoy without the close partnership of our banking partners. And if that goes away, I think it's a real tragedy, both for individuals and small businesses, but also for the economy at large. I think anytime you lose that sort of individualized service, it's it's a loss. And, you know, certainly when companies are larger, they don't tend to focus as much on the individual. And hopefully that's not something that happens in the banking sector. Me as a Canadian, I know that our banks are, you know, large and they, they do, as you say, pretend to compete with each other. But if you're looking to go and borrow some money, you're pretty much handcuffed to whatever rates they're offering because they're all pretty close to each other. And there isn't a lot of incentives to switch banks. One thing I wanted to mention was, you know, bank runs, this isn't a new phenomenon. The Fed was created to prevent the risk of a bank run in the first place. So it's interesting that, you know, this is why the Fed is designed, but it's also one of their largest risks. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the contagion, as they say, and what, it's just sort of a word that they've been throwing at the overall risk. If you could dig into contagion, what that is, what that looks like, and why the Fed isn't going to be capable of doing their job and preventing bank runs. Yeah. So contagion is what we're seeing unfold in the market today, which is, you know, ultimately 
at its core, a bank is a business that is based on confidence. And it has to be because the bank does not have on deposit in cash what you and I think that would be necessary to go take all my cash out. You know, if everybody did it all at once, that's the definition of a bank run. And, and so what happens when you see surprises in the markets like this, people begin to wonder, are my deposits safe? And there's something very visceral about worrying about losing your money. I mean, if you're a small business owner and uh, you have a million dollars in your local bank, that million dollars is the integral of years of hard work and risk and successes and failures and could represent your anticipated retirement or putting your kids through college, all of the things that you work for the totality of your life. And to have three quarters of it ripped away or put in limbo because you didn't go and press the button to move your funds is just not a risk for people that's worth taking if they have any doubt about the sanctity of their institution. And so contagion is just literally the disease of panic spreading across the population and dousing out such panic, which we hope this decabillion dollar influx of deposits into First Republic does, can be very challenging. And so look, for the average person listening, vast majority of people in the country, they don't have more than $250,000 in a bank account if the numbers just say that they don't. And, and so for them, we've never had an instance where FDIC insurance didn't pay, right? Um, nobody's ever lost a dollar that was covered by FDIC insurance. And so the vast majority of people aren't moving deposits out of banks because they're over some $250,000 limit. But if you're a small business, and by the way, even though it's a small number of accounts, it represents at some of these banks a sizable portion of their deposits, anywhere between 50 to 90 percent in, in Silicon Valley's bank's case. And so, you know, contagion is real. The entire edifice of the U.S. banking system is predicated on people having confidence that their money is good. As soon as that confidence is shaken, then you begin to see panic. And, and the swiftness with which the disease of contagion spread through the venture capital world in the 48 hours before Silicon Valley's collapse is staggering. And that alone, that's which, again, as I said earlier, is enabled by the ease with which you know, digital transfers can occur. That speed alone is kind of shocking to people and makes one wonder which bank will be next, which is why I think, as we're talking today, First Republic is the, the line in the sand. And I do believe that the feds will do everything in their power to make sure that First Republic is resolved in a way that sends a message that this banking crisis ends here. If they're unable to do that, all bets are kind of off, right? And so we're, we're at a precarious time. I said earlier in the week that I thought the worst was behind us, and I thought that they would draw a line in the sand on First Republic on, a, on another podcast that I appeared on. I, I do believe maybe it's just hopeful or wishful thinking on my part, but I, I do believe that that will be the case because, as I said to a friend of mine who's the CFO of a, a pretty well-known bank, I said, you know, because they were wondering about what the options were for the regulators, and I kind of made the point that when it comes down to choosing between heading into the abyss or breaking the law, the feds will break the law every time. And, and as evidence, I pointed out to the fact that it was technically illegal for the Fed to buy corporate bonds in the post-COVID crisis, and they did anyway. And they hardly bought any, but just the fact that they were willing to break the law, that signaling power to the market that the Fed will do, do whatever it takes to stem this crisis was, in fact, transformative. And so for a return on investment, I think that the, the puny amount of bonds that the Fed actually purchased was very, very high ROI for the Fed. I suspect they will do whatever it takes to save First Republic, uh, regardless of the particulars of the legality involved. Um, and so that's sort of my base case. I hope it's right. Yeah, hopefully they, that is the line in the sand, and hopefully they're willing to defend it to stop, as you say, the contagion and panic. And I did want to ask you something about the monetary system and 
cryptocurrency because as it stands today, there's always jokes out there that Bitcoin is a tech stock because it's so correlated with the NASDAQ 100 or you know, some of these other tech companies. But today, the NASDAQ 100 is flat and Bitcoin's up 7%. And I wonder if that has something to do with a loss of trust in somewhat of the monetary system as a deposit-backed system. And perhaps if this could be a moment that we look back on where people say, okay, this is, you know, the beginning of a transition to a cryptocurrency-focused economy. So we have a slightly different view that would probably annoy Bitcoin enthusiasts listening. Uh, we put out a piece, uh, again, called Don Jerome, where we basically talk about what this would mean for Bitcoin. We've made this point early on, much to the chagrin of enthusiasts in the area. People look at the price of Bitcoin, and because it's quoted on the screen as 26 or 27,000 US dollars today, we prefer to look at the price of Bitcoin as priced in tethers. And if the, the crackdown against crypto is as global and as violent as we think it is, people will be rushing out of the crypto ecosystem into, say, Bitcoin, because they can't get US dollars for their crypto. And so they'd rather park it in Bitcoin, which they could then at some point in the future transfer peer to peer to somebody who could ultimately convert it to US dollars in a form of money laundering. And so the price of Bitcoin could go to a million the day before Tether collapses as people rush to get out of Tether tokens or USDC tokens it into Bitcoin, because if they think their tokens are going to be worthless, they will take any amount of Bitcoin in exchange for them. And so I would be careful to forget about this, this tiny sleight of hand in that stable coins are sort of the currency in the crypto ecosystem. And the total amount of US dollars floating in that system is shrinking and becoming far more difficult to take out of the system. And so counterintuitively, as the crackdown on crypto continues, we could see significant and anti-correlated spikes in the price of Bitcoin if our thesis and hypothesis is true. And we think it is. So while famously I was pressed on a podcast about at what price would I be interested in converting from a no corner to owning some Bitcoin, I said 5,000. If you had told me that Tether was going to be raided next week, I would be long the nominal price of Bitcoin on the screen because people will be reacting to that. And by the way, the insiders will be the first to know it. And so they will, of course, front run everybody and trade their tethers for Bitcoin in the hopes that they could stick it in a cold storage and have something to restart their lives with post-crisis. And so that's my view. I'm sure others have their own views, but that's how we look at the situation. Yeah, I'm neither bullish or bearish on Bitcoin personally. I'm just trying to figure out its use case. And one thing that I found interesting as it relates to crypto is people were suggesting that Russia was mining Bitcoin with their energy that nobody's allowed to buy and then selling it onto the market in kind of a way to export their energy without regulation. And I do wonder if you had any insight. I know you're you know very well versed in the energy and crypto areas what where do you think crypto is going to be used within energy markets do you think there's a use case there so i would be bearish reports that russia is using energy to mine for bitcoin i i I haven't seen the numbers, so you know maybe somebody can prove me wrong. But the vast majority of Russian energy is finding its way to the market through you know black market channels or countries that are openly ignoring Western-based sanctions. India, in particular, and China are absorbing huge amounts of Russian energy. 
President Xi is going to Russia in a couple of days. You know, I, I think in the West, we assume that Russia's energy is not getting out onto the market, which I think is a, a false assumption. There is some use case for Bitcoin, although again, that's being clamped down in the energy sector. Um, we wrote a piece on this several months ago about Bitcoin miners acting as peaker plants to stabilize the grid as we force introduce more and more intermittency via uh, renewables like wind and solar. There is a scenario where it would make sense to have peaker plants making some money by mining for Bitcoin, but pivoting into the grid as needed or off the grid as needed to stabilize the grid as the intermittency of wind and solar makes balancing the grid a significant challenge for grid operators. However, environmentalists have all but killed the, that notion in the U.S. They view Bitcoin and the mining of it as a wasteful use of energy. Whether or not you think they're correct or not, it's just an undeniable fact that that is their view, and they are very litigious, and they're actively going after um, Bitcoin miners on, envir on an environmental basis here. So, you know, to the extent that maybe happening at the margins in Russia, I don't know, but there's an awful lot of Russian oil and gas flowing into China and India and even Japan, natural gas. And so I think the disruption in the supplies of, of Russian energy production uh, have been vastly overstated in the sort of propaganda of the Western media. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you make a good point there that Russia probably isn't as desperate as that may seem to have to mine crypto to export their energy. I think that you're right. I think they're probably just exporting it in different ways to India and China and whoever wants to get some cheaper oil on the market, which brings me to another question for you regarding oil. Currently right now, we're looking at $66 US for crude oil WTI. And, you know, we were floating around between 75 and 80 for quite a while, for fairly comfortably. I do wonder with the banking crisis, if all that's happening is everybody's taking their deposits from small banks and moving them to large banks, is it really going to have that large of an impact on the economy? Or is this a bit of a overstep from speculators in the oil market? So anytime you have violent moves in the market, you can have violent swings in commodities or stocks that seem unrelated. And that could be, you know, people blowing up or people needing to reposition their balance sheet or people needing to raise liquidity to meet redemptions or pick their favorite. And so I wouldn't put too much sort of kins to the, 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 the recent mi minor correction in the price of oil. It was between 70 and 80 for a very long period of time here. And it was you know, in the mid, low mid 70s or just a, a day or two ago. It has sold off. It sold off into the close yesterday and covered a bit. And then now it's uh, sorry, into the close on Wednesday and sort of stayed flat last couple of days down a bit today. But by and large, I think the financial markets, uh, when it comes to oil, swamp the physical markets in some ways. And, and this says more about positioning and so on. I still sort of secularly bullish the price of oil. You know, I was listening to a podcast just this morning. Um, Lou Gehring was on Dr. Chris Kiefer's podcast, Decouple, and, and he's calling for peak oil in the, in the shale patch in the U.S., which was an interesting call, and he makes some pretty compelling arguments. And, and if that's true, and if U.S. oil production truly does turn over, you know, the, the underlying case to be bullish oil still exists in the sense that it's not like we're seeing massive deployments of capital to bring new supplies online anytime soon. And so typically these commodity blow off tops end when companies overinvest and all that new supply comes online, but we're not just not seeing that. And so it, it's, it's, it's a curious thing for sure that oil has shown some weakness here and tech stocks and so on have rallied this week. And so, yeah, we shall see. I, I, I'm still sort of hard for me to see a case that's bearish for oil in the next two to three years, but clearly price action this week should perhaps give me pause. Yeah, it's just an interesting to watch the markets, the way that they react to these events unfolding. There's an interesting quote I wanted to read you just before we close it out. There are decades where nothing happens and there are weeks where decades happen. And we've all heard that. And of course, 2020 
could be a decade where centuries happen, perhaps, because there's been a lot going on in the last five years. And I wonder if just to close it out before I give you an opportunity to share where people can find your content, what do you think is the most significant event in the last five years? And what do you think we should be watching out for moving forward? Boy, the most significant event in the last five years undoubtedly was the COVID lockdowns and the bazooka of fiscal and monetary stimulus that resulted from that. And we're still feeling the aftershocks of that, of course. If you pushed me, I would say 100 years from now, all of this would be seen as echoes and tremors and aftershocks of the great financial crisis of 08, 09, where you know, the Fed made the fateful decision to look inward and protect U.S. interests and citizenry uh, at the expense of sort of their global responsibilities to maintain reasonable strength in the dollar as good as gold for oil. And so that was kind of a breaking of a four or five decades long monetary regime, uh, some would say. And, and what we're seeing now is, is the repositioning of various oil producers and consumers perhaps angling to create a system outside of U.S. dollar hegemony for them to transact in. But if you ask me for the last five years, I think the COVID lockdowns were undoubtedly both culturally, economically, and financially by far the most significant event. And everything we're seeing now can ultimately be traced back to that. Yeah, I think that COVID obviously was such a global event that it just it impacted everybody in a different way. And it will be interesting to see how the after effects of the COVID lockdowns and financial stimulus, as you say, play out. And I, I do think that there is still time to learn whether the war in Ukraine is going to be another one of those very significant events. Poland sending a, the Ukraine make jets last time I saw. So it's really not de-escalating. And I guess time will tell where that goes. Hopefully, you know, they find peace sooner than later, but you never know and something to keep an eye on. So yeah, and let's, um, uh, let's hope that uh, she's not going to Russia to inform him that he plans to move on Taiwan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. That would just be another thing for this decade. And uh, yeah. hopefully that doesn't happen. But yeah, with that said, I, I really appreciate all of your insight here. I think that as always, you provide great content and great thoughts on, you know, these major global events. So I want to say thanks. And I want to give you the opportunity to provide any listeners where they can find your content. Yeah, we publish on Substack. It's doomberg.substack.com. We publish six to eight times a month on energy finance and the economy at large, uh, mixing a bit of crypto once in a while. And we are 100% subscriber supported. So head over there, uh, doomberg.substack.com and check us out and, and give us the opportunity to earn your business. Absolutely. Thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. All right, sir. Have a great weekend. You as well. Joe is not a financial advisor and may have interest in the stocks discussed on the show. So do not take any information included within this podcast as a recommendation or formal advice. Thank you.